If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. The LGBT plus community has won many hard-fought battles, but that doesn't make up for the years of suffering caused by prejudice and oppression. So how should we redress the wrongs done to that community in the past? And is it even possible? On today's episode, we're joined by renowned LGBT plus activist, Peter Tatchell, who outlines a direction to move forward without forgetting the past. Men who were convicted unjustly under historic anti-gay laws should receive state compensation. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to Peter Tatchell. I think it's a good place to start is to remind ourselves that until 1999, Britain had by volume the largest number of anti-gay laws of any country in the world, some of them dating back centuries. By 2013, um, those laws, all the major anti-gay laws had been repealed. Now that is an astonishing achievement. In that short space of time, all these historic anti-gay laws, or at least all the major ones, were repealed. And of course, the culmination was the legislation of equal marriage in 2013. Um, If we look at how that was achieved, it was through a combination of both uh, external, outsider protest and direct action by groups like Outrage, and then also by insider parliamentary lobbying and uh, legal cases bought by Stonewall. Those two tactics worked in tandem, a bit like the suffragettes and the suffragettes. Both were needed, both were necessary. Um, If we look at the outrage campaigns, for example, around the age of consent, uh, outrage organized um, teenage kiss-ins and turn-ins where young people below the lawful age of this consent for gay and bisexual men um, staged kissings and confessed to having same-sex relations uh, contrary to the law, effectively challenging the police to arrest them. Um, 
And then as a result of those protests, there was a huge amount of media coverage. And on top of that, uh, of course, it generated a huge public debate. And that raised public awareness and put the authorities under pressure to change. And then off the back of that, Stonewall lobbied members of parliament and the government, and indeed brought legal cases in the British and European courts. So that eventually, finally, the combination of those two tactics resulted in the law being changed and the age of consent be equalized at 16 for everyone in 2001. Having said all that, there are still inequalities today. You know, we have made enormous progress, but there are still some, I suppose, compared to the past, relatively minor uh, inequalities in the law. Uh, when it comes to blood donations, for example, uh, gay and bisexual men are still not allowed to um, donate blood if they've had sex with a person of the same sex in the preceding three months. Um, now that is based on a stereotypical generalization about uh, same-sex behavior. The idea or the thinking behind this is that gay and bisexual men are at higher risk of HIV and other sexual infections. But of course, some are, and they should not donate blood. But others are not. Others are in long-term monogamous relationships. They've tested HIV negative. There's no reason why they shouldn't give blood. So the push really now is to move from this three-month deferral period to a policy of individual assessment, where each individual, regardless of their sexuality or gender identity, is required to answer more detailed questions about their sexual behavior to establish their risk factors. So what we're saying is test the blood, not the sexuality. Another outstanding issue is the fact that all the equality laws, fantastic though they are, have some limited qualified exemptions for religious organizations. Not just places of worship, but also faith-run schools, hospitals, nursing homes, shelters for the homeless, and so on. In certain circumstances, they are permitted to discriminate against LGBT plus people, either in their employment policy or in the provision of services, if they can establish a case that it is necessary to maintain their religious ethos. Now, no other institution in our society has such exemptions. Um, this is completely and totally unique. And my view is that religious organizations should not be above the law, but they should be required to conform to the equality statutes in the same way as everyone else. We also have the problem that the Gender Recognition Act which was pioneering and progressive in 2004, um, is now outdated. Um, it has far too many hurdles and obstacles to trans people getting a legal change in their affirmed gender. Um, 
The government did promise reform under Theresa May, but that has effectively been kicked into the long grass under Boris Johnson. So it still is an issue for trans people. Um, they don't want to, understandably, to have to go through all these ho medical hoops and hurdles to be able to affirm their gender identity in legal documents. Um, we also have the ongoing issue of uh, the difficulty of LGBT plus refugees seeking asylum and securing it. Um, the rate of refusal for LGBT plus refugees is much higher than for political, religious or ethnic refugees. And a lot of it boils down to the fact of the difficulty of establishing or proving one's sexuality or gender identity. But even where that can be proven through documents and personal affidavits from people who know the person who's seeking asylum, still the rate of refusal is very, very, very high. And this is really heartbreaking because some LGBT plus refugees who fled serious persecution where they're at risk of imprisonment or even execution are sometimes sent back to those countries where their lives and liberty is in danger. So the asylum system does need reform. And I might add, not just for LGBT plus refugees, but for all refugees, because currently it is biased and weighted against genuine applicants. And the final issue I'd raise is, of course, we have same-sex marriage, but it is not true marriage equality because it is under a separate law, the, 19, uh, the uh, uh, 2013 law, rather than under the main marriage law, the 1949 Marriage Act. So having a separate law is not equality. And moreover, there is a lock in place in this law which prevents the Church of England from conducting same-sex marriages, even if it wishes to. So even if the Church of England decided that it would agree to conduct same-sex marriages in its place of worship, the law prohibits the church from doing that. And that is an attack upon religious freedom as well as discrimination. So these are some ongoing wrongs that need to be put right. Looking at the overall issue, I think, um, we have made some progress. After a big campaign nearly a decade ago, or about a decade ago, um, the government did issue a public apology to gay and bisexual men for the historic persecution they had faced under anti-gay laws. That was a really big, important step. Um, and then a bit later, again under pressure from campaigners like myself and many others, uh, the government agreed to introduce a pardon system to pardon men who had been um, convicted under these laws. Now, the problem is that the way the pardon scheme is working is not effective and not fair. Um, the last figures that I saw showed that about two thirds of men who applied for a pardon had been refused. Now it's true the pardon scheme does only apply 
to men who were convicted for behavior that is no longer a crime today. So that will mean that men, uh, perhaps who had sex in public places, even in the middle of the night when no one else is around, um, in a park or a public toilet, that they will not, are not eligible for um, a pardon. But there are many others where the circumstances um, would appear to be um, within the framework of no longer being a crime today, where the applicant has still been refused and the explanation has either not been forthcoming or not adequate, not, not, not credible, uh, the explanation for the refusal. So that is an issue that really has to be uh, re-examined. Uh, of course, one of the problems with the pardon scheme is that not everyone is aware of it. Um, not everyone's aware of how to go about it because it's not been well publicized. Um, so I think there needs to be greater thought about how that pardon scheme is working. Of course, as well as the pardon scheme, there is the disregard scheme, um, which means that men who have been convicted under historic anti-gay laws can um, apply to have their conviction disregarded, effectively struck from the record. Um, it doesn't mean it will disappear forever, but it won't normally show up on uh, criminal checks. And that scheme has also had the same kind of problems as the pardon scheme. Um, many men who were convicted just simply have been told they're ineligible without due proper explanation. Um, if we look at the bigger, wider current issue, it's for compensation. Um, my own Peter Tatchell Foundation has argued that men who were convicted unjustly under historic anti-gay laws should receive state compensation. We're talking about, we're not talking about huge sums, but we are saying that men who really suffered under these laws should receive some, at least symbolic compensation. And in serious cases, um, substantive compensation to um, help redress what they went through. If we look at the figures um, from 1885, which was the point when all same-sex acts were criminalized, uh, about 100,000 men were convicted. And if we look at after 1967, when there was a partial decriminalization of male homosexuality in England and Wales, approximately 15,000 men were convicted after 1967. Uh, of these men convicted, um, roughly about 10,000 are probably still alive today. And about 5,000 of them are ex-military, people who were convicted under military law. So when we talk about compensation, we're talking about compensation for imprisonment, compensation for fines, which were often very substantial, maybe 500 or 1,000 pounds or more, 
Um, we also need to recognise that many of these men, as a result of their conviction, were sacked from their job. Um, some who were married uh, ended up having their marriages uh, collapse and ending up being divorced and rejected by their partners. Um, others were evicted from their homes by homophobic landlords. Um, some were victims of mob violence where they were attacked in the street. And many men uh, suffered from very severe mental and emotional trauma, including breakdown, um, sometimes you know, full mental illness, um, as well as you know, you know, others had just depression and anxiety, uh, some self-harmed, uh, and indeed some did commit suicide. So there is some demonstrable harm being caused by these laws and by these prosecutions and convictions. And it's for these men that I think some form of compensation is required. Now, my own Peter Tatchell Foundation, um, working with some of the victims, did present a letter to Theresa May, the Prime Minister, um, a couple of years ago, where we argued that this compensation scheme should be considered by the government. Unfortunately, the government's response was that they would adopt a wait and see attitude. And that's the way it's been for the last two and more years. Um, since the election of Boris Johnson, um, it's been consumed by, the government has been consumed by Brexit and now the coronavirus crisis. Um, but we are not hopeful that the new government, Boris Johnson, will make a change in terms of compensation. But we do intend to reopen that case in the coming months. And we always, of course, live in hope. With regard to the military victims, um, many of whom did suffer terribly uh, until 1994, uh, same-sex relations were a offence under military law and imprisonment was pretty standard. And uh, it wasn't just imprisonment like in a civilian institution, it was in a military prison where conditions were extremely harsh. Uh, just to give you an example, um, you know, men who had um, entirely consensual same-sex relations in the military, uh, who um, uh, had those sexual relations in their off-duty time, in their own civilian uh, or uh, other non-military accommodation, um, they were among the victims. Uh, what they did would have not been a crime at that time for civilians. So quite extreme and explicit um, uh, discrimination. When we're looking at the Ministry of Defence, they did have briefly, under pressure from lawyers, about 20 years ago, a limited compensation scheme. But it was not publicised. Um, most men uh, who had been victimised, and indeed women as well, because women were also caught up under these uh, anti-gay military laws, um, they were not aware of the scheme. 
and the compensation offered was derisory. You know, people had lost their jobs. When you get dismissed from the military because of your sexuality, you lost your job, uh, your accommodation, your friends in the military, and of course your pension. So this left many of these people in a state of severe destitution. I'll just give you one example. Stephen Close was in the army and in 1982, he was somehow discovered to have had um, a brief sexual encounter with another military person in his unit. It was in the privacy of their own you know, quarters, uh, but somehow this was discovered and as a result, he was charged and court-martialed. He was sentenced to six months imprisonment in Colchester Military Prison. Not a nice place for anyone to be. Um, he suffered you know, a good deal of uh, prejudice and hostility in that prison regime. When he was released, he thought at last this nightmare is over. But then when he went to seek a job, he was told that, no, thank you. Because of course he had to provide a reference to his future employers. And that included a reference to account for, you know, his service in the military. Uh, because of his court martial conviction, his papers said, dishonorably discharged with disgrace. That meant that, of course, most employers would not take him on. In fact, for the best part of 10 or 15 years, he couldn't get a job because employers found that reference from the military as a no-no. Um, in fact, he struggled for 30 years to get a reasonably paid job. It's only in the last few years that he's got a reasonably paid job. Um, so he has suffered financially um, very, very badly. And it did immense emotional damage to him. You know, for many, many years, he suffered from acute depression and anxiety. He had thoughts of suicide. Um, he was totally despairing. Um, and I think his story is so typical of many, many men uh, in his situation, men who went through the indignities and humiliations, not just of the military um, anti-gay laws and their enforcement, but also the civilian criminal law as well. So as we're talking about probably 15,000 men still alive today, and I think that those men do deserve compensation. And I will be further pursuing that campaign in the coming months. As I said, it's not about, you know, grabbing money. Um, it's about a fair compensation for men who suffered very badly. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers.